Blog Talk Radio. Hi, and welcome to The Art of Film Funding. I'm your co-host, Claire Papan, along with Carol Dean, author of the best-selling book, The Art of Film Funding. Carol is also the founder and president of From the Heart Productions and the host of this show. Karen Everett is one of the world's leading documentary story consultants, as well as an award-winning documentary filmmaker. She taught editing for 18 years at the Graduate School of Journalism at UC Berkeley, named the number one ranked documentary program in America by Documentary Magazine. Karen founded New Doc Editing, which is an editing and consulting business that helps filmmakers structure compelling documentaries for venues such as PBS, HBO, Sundance, and other top film festivals. And Carol, Karen has been a donor to your grants for many years, right? Yes, Claire, and I'm really honored to have you, Karen. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. I'm excited. Thank you, Claire, for that great intro. Well, we've got a lot to cover today. So first of all, we want to know about your fast track editing. We want to get some tips on logging, guidance on how to get out of production and into post and help with how to have a successful rough cut screening and also information on editing trailers because that is the most important thing to me. I see thousands of trailers a year and that's really Mm. what sells you. So let's get started with, first of all, let's get your overview of the industry and where we're headed based on your 30 years in the industry. Wow, I'm getting old. (laughs) In 30 years, there have been a lot of changes. Um, Obviously, in technology, I mean, when I started making films, I had to go to film school to get access to a $50,000 beta camera. So that, you know, affordable cameras, editing platforms, nonlinear editing platforms, that led to the uh, big word, democratization of filmmaking. So it put, you know, cameras in the hands of of everyday people. Um, But that also led to a lot of competition for funds and, um, you know, to be honest, a glut of bad films, uh, badly made films. Um, uh, But we're learning. And then 25 years ago, the uh, the character-driven documentary came on the scene with Hoop Dreams. It's one of the first docs to make money at theaters. That was uh, 1994. And that that's uh, that kind of documentary is still going strong. It's getting funding. It's winning awards. And it's one of the things I specialize in with my story consulting. Um, but to me, the biggest, well, I would say most exciting change um, is the rise of what I would call inspiring documentaries. Um as you know, I used to teach in a journalism school, and even though it was a fantastic program, um, I got burned out because it was within a uh, – because back then, journalism was seen as reporting on not the news, but the bad news. And in America, we had um, – we produced the most social issue documentaries, but you know, I would say 10 or 20 years ago – they were mostly focused on what's wrong with the world, you know, calling attention to things like homelessness and climate change. I'm sure you, you saw um, 
the uh, Al Gore film, for example. There's two out now. Right, um, right. And those films, I think they were needed at the time to open our eyes, but uh, I recently read that Jer- Jerry Feinfeld said about documentaries that they have a reputation for being, quote, incredibly depressing. Um, <laughs> but that's changing. Yes. <laughs> um, you know, so people will go to see a film that is uh, about a Supreme Court justice who, you know, fought her way up uh, the ladder or about Fred Rogers, um, you know, uh, Won't You Be My Neighbor. Um, and the, these films, the, the the biggest thing about them is that they focus on protagonists who are doing something to uh, – they're not burying their head in the sand, right? They're – they're doing something to change the world. And um, Variety Magazine called 2018, uh, you know, the year of the positive documentary. Um, I wanted, actually, I, I wrote down this quote because I thought it was so, it's basically uh, seconding what I've been saying for 10 years. <clears throat> this is from the uh, vice president at CNN Films, Courtney Sexton. She said, I believe that these positive stories are breaking through and they're, uh, they consciously filmmakers are, uh, or CNN is consciously choosing stories that are quote, impactful, meaningful, and you could say positive. Wonderful. Uh, so yes. that's really exciting. Oh, it is yeah. exciting. And, and Karen, I've been reading that films, documentaries that have, a suggestion or uh, ideas for how to solve the problem or solutions to the problem at the end are so well received, uh, let's say twice as well received as those who just state the problem because that's, like Seinfeld said, that's when you're depressed, when you walk away and know, oh my gosh, we got a big problem with no concept uh, shared for how to improve it. So, that's that's mm-hmm. been a major shift, don't you think? I do, I do, and and actually, I think you know those those documentaries that like Inside Job, which won an Academy Award probably over ten years ago, um, which is about the mortgage crisis. I found it really depressing, but I also recognize that there's still a role for investigative documentaries, and for many years, and I'm talking, you know in the 60s and 70s and 80s. We needed to be woken up to the problems. But, you know, you and I recently uh, helped a filmmaker, um, Prasada, who is sort of, uh, you know, he's like a one-man band, as are many filmmakers that, that we work with, um, but who is an, exemplifying this this trend toward more solution-oriented documentaries. And uh, his protagonist is a... a this guy who's a, a well-meaning uh, carpenter and his desire, his goal in the film is to make tiny houses for homeless people. I actually suggested he called the film Making a Tiny Difference because he doesn't have a title, a title yet. Because I think however small, audiences really want to see people addressing social problems rather than complaining about them. <laughs> Another uh, Absolutely, right. And just quickly, I want to mention another documentary that um, I finished a story consulting. We did some, we did edited the trailer. Uh, it's a documentary about big soda in Mexico and how it's causing diabetes. And one of the reviewers said this film could have been a horror show, but um, 
you know, the director focused on a solution-oriented protagonist who wanted to install a soda tax, which made a huge difference. Um, so anyway, I, I tend to get on my uh, stump about this issue. <laughs> um, and I, I don't mean to be preachy, but mostly I'm excited. I mean, these are the kinds of films I want to watch. Oh, yes. I, I, me too. And that Diabetes in Mexico. I love the tiny house. I, I love that film. Yeah. And the Diabetes in Mexico just applied for our grant. And actually, she's in the top 20 of the finest. Yes. Oh, and she's great. done a fabulous job. So I didn't know you were working with her. You, That's really well done. The, the clips I saw and the trailers I saw were very impactful to me. Karen Akins is her name, and the film is called El Susto, uh, if anybody wants to look it up. Um, I'm so glad you're helping her. That's, that's great. And you also helped Prasada. He came to me saying, I have this film. I've, been, I've edited it, but I need, you know, I need outside perspective. And so I said I'd love to help. He had no money. I sent him to you. And he, like, within a matter of weeks, like, raised funds. Um, to hire me and do some other things. Um, so uh, thanks for helping him. That's sure. Awesome. He got a crowdfunding yes. campaign together. Yeah, it was exciting. Yes, this is, uh, they just have to believe in themselves, believe in the film, and know that they're funded. That the brain has to get in gear and know how great people are. I think this is the biggest thing we need to get across to our filmmakers how talented they are because most of them that I talk to are writer, director, producer, or writer, editor, or producer. I mean, they are incredibly talented people, but they they uh, lose the perspective of how talented they are, and then they get very worried about raising the funds Yeah, when people are more yeah. than glad to help you. You just have to ask them to join you and be part of your project. And usually that's all it takes is your switch, their their attitude to switch over to the positive side. But I tell oh, you what I'm worried yes. about. Yes, yeah. right? It's all in the mind. I think the mind is your greatest asset in film funding. I love your approach. I love your approach. And, and I know you. Uh, I, we do want to switch to something else. But I, I just have to say that um, – are you familiar with the D word, which is a, it's an online forum for documentary filmmakers, yes. kind of like DocuLink? So yeah, you might have heard that last um, month that, uh, they put together a, a special week-long series with um, filmmaker and psychotherapist Rebecca Day about mental health challenges for, for filmmakers and not only financial challenges but mental health challenges um, – because it is so challenging um, and, and lonely and filmmakers face rejections and self-doubt. But I love your take on it, that, that the mindset is, is a great, the greatest advantage. Because, uh, you know, this aspect of documentary filmmaking is rarely discussed in public. And you take it on uh, – I mean, what, what is it? Remind me of the name of your um, seminar, which I've taken um, – uh, Intentional uh, filmmaking class. Intentional filmmaking, mm-hmm. which is, you know, like Tony Robbins would say, it's 90% psychology and 10% strategy or tactics. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> That's it. Right. Yeah. And it's a, the most important thing, uh, one of the most important things is that you're 
um, it's not an uh, you're not out there with your hand out saying, uh, please uh, don't you know please give me some money to make this film. It's an invitation to join you, and it's being part of their community. And people want to be part of something greater than themselves. So to the thought of joining a group of people making a film or supporting it and being part of that community or you can call it um, your tribe, be part of my tribe and help me make this film. And together we can achieve miracles. That's the concept. And once filmmakers come into their the mindset that uh, that people want to help them, they just need to know what they're doing and be able to show a good clip of their film and have uh, experienced people around them to support them, they're on their way. That's Those are the key elements, you know, in my opinion. When you were helping me raise funds for uh, my last documentary, um, and we, we did like six crowdfunding campaigns and raised over $100,000, um, one of the things that I started doing to remind myself of what you just said, that people want to help, is – I started making donations to other uh, causes, not just filmmaking causes, but other causes. Um, and, you know, they weren't necessarily $100 donations. They could be $10. But it reminded me of how good it felt to give. Uh, and so it gave me, when you would say people want to be part of your tribe or they want to help you, I, I felt that in my bones because I'd just done it. I became part of somebody's tribe. I just gave to a, a good cause. So anyway, that's just a little tip. If you want, if you're not feeling like people, you're not confident that people will give to your project, you know, just challenge yourself to give to one other project and remember how good it feels. Well, that change your confidence level. Yes, <laughs> change your confidence level. <clears throat> well, what I'm concerned about is the uh, money being paid for docs is going down, mm. uh, mm-hmm. relatively speaking. There will always be the black swan when when we get a word from Sundance that someone paid $10 million for a documentary. But that's the mm-hmm. unusual. That is not the norm. And <clears throat> what I'm hearing is that the normal prices are going down, which means that filmmakers really have to start paying attention to the budget because the the selling price may not be what they think it will be. <clears throat> Keeping up to date with the selling price is almost impossible because I I'm the I feel like I'm right in the hub of the wheel, Karen, and I get to hear the horror stories of people who have signed distribution agreements and haven't seen a penny for years. Oh, I know. That's sad. Yeah. And part of that has to do with just think, thinking that it, if you have a distributor, that they're going to market the film for you uh, rather than just fulfill orders. I've had that experience. Um, and, we, and you know, we, we both know a lot of smart distribution consultants that can help filmmakers uh, sort of create a hybrid, like hybrid cinema is one of them, John Race, um, uh, and, and Peter Broderick, um, and Julian Spitzmiller, these are all people who have figured out how to help filmmakers tailor a distribution plan that can include a do-it-yourself component. Um, and, of course, getting your film out there is a whole other <laughs> – it's like making another film. Um, but, yeah, I, I, you probably know the numbers more than I do, but 
I think part of the reason is there's so much content out there that um, I, 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 one uh, figure I heard with the Sundance Channel uh, when they were doing their documentary program, they used to acquire docs for tens of thousands of dollars and then went to offering 10000 and and then just stopped. And, of course, with PBS, you still have to raise money to get your doc aired. Um, yeah. Right. One statistic I heard is that uh, 1% of documentary filmmakers are commercially successful. Uh, so, so you know, what, what's the good news? What can be done about that? Um, the, the, the one thing that I've focused on with my business, New Doc Editing, is lowering the cost of making the film. And the biggest line item usually is uh, uh, an editor um, and the, the time that it takes to edit a documentary. Um, you know, it used to be that a PBS documentary, uh, an hour-long PBS documentary with uh, 30 hours would take uh, easily six months. Um, some of my... I've had directors who've hired us for up to two years to edit a documentary. That hasn't happened in a long time because I've started this new program called Accelerated Post. And the sort of claim to fame or the promise is that we'll edit your documentary in 10 weeks or less. Wow. This is marvelous. Tell us more. (laughs) Well, um, people always want to know how much it costs and I don't want to be coy about prices. So I'll, it's there. Our weekly editing fee is $3,000. And frankly, if you're paying less than that for an editor, I would really seriously check their credentials. So one of the reasons we can do it in 10 weeks is because our editors, I've handpicked them. They're career editors. They're in the top 5% of editors and they're good. They're fast. And you also get me as a story consultant, and we're going to hone in really quickly on what is the filmmaker's vision, what uh, what needs to happen to execute that vision. Is this going to be a story-driven documentary? So we get really clear on you know what's the structure of the film before we start editing. If there's not a story in the sense of like a character on a quest, then then it's probably like an essay-style film. So one of the first questions I'll ask is, what are the seven top ideas you want to create in this film. And then we guide the director um, into, if they've overshot, which is, you know, a common problem. I've done it. It's a big problem. Um, We guide them to culling their footage down to 30 hours, give that 30 hours to us, and, um, you know, we'll spend the first three weeks working on an assembly cut, which is just gathering the best footage. And then um, we'll do two rough cuts, which is two weeks each, rough cut A, rough cut B, where we're really um, figuring out the film structure, um, which which characters work, what's the best, uh, what's what is the film's chief story, uh, chief structural approach? Is it a story, or is, or is it an essay, or or is it a combination of the two? And then two weeks on a fine cut and then a week for, for lock picture. And while we can't promise to do it in 10 weeks because it's not up to us when a film is done, um, we've always come in um, at, you know, at that amount. Sometimes people will come to us with a rough cut so it doesn't take as long. But I think um, getting the footage down to 30 hours with some smart 
uh, logging, knowing what your film is about, having criteria for what stays and what what goes uh, in the the string outs that then go to the assembly cut, um, and then having talented editors aboard. Sorry, there's a noisy truck. <laughs> um, that can really speed up the process. And uh, what are your you know, guidelines cheaper. for? What are your guidelines for that? Um, for getting it down to 30 hours. Um, I would. Uh, that's a great question. Um, the first thing to do is, uh, if if this really is a uh, character-driven film, so just simply put, um, a there's a character who uh, rises to the level of a protagonist because they have they're on a quest. Um, then you want to uh, create a sequence, sort of like just a, 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 a sequence or a string out where you're gathering all of the plot points, all of the, the character beats, what happens to that person, or what do they initiate. Um, and you can use text on screen and, and markers to identify what we're seeing. Um, if there are true verte scenes where, where you're actually it's not just b-roll we're actually seeing something happen on camera like you know a protagonist hits a home run um then just grab the the pitch and the uh you know the the bat swinging in the home run just the key moment in that scene just throw that into a sequence of plot points um because you know as one of my editors once said it's easy enough to find the surrounding clips to build the scene. You don't have to put that all in this, this sequence. And then if you have multiple protagonists, so characters with different quests or different backstories, I would suggest creating a separate sequence for each main character, which really helps us see if there's a story there, um, an, or enough of a story to sustain a, a, a film. Um, I'd create another uh, sequence or they're often called string outs because they're much longer than an assembly cut, which might be a couple hours. So these might be, you know, sequences that are four or five hours. For any um, thematic material, uh, I mentioned before, you know, asking the director, what are the, what are the top seven ideas in your film um, that, that you want the viewer to take away when they're done watching? So you might have seven sequences that are very focused on ideas in the film. So in my film recently, for example, about Barbara Marks Hubbard, um, a, a, a visionary, uh, one sequence was about what conscious evolution means. Um, another sequence was about her idea to create a peace room instead of a war room, um, which Marianne Williamson is now focused on. Um, and I, I'm—is this sound okay, Carol? I know that. Excellent. Big garbage truck next to me. Okay, good. Um, and then a couple other just quick tips. Um, realize before you go into logging and preparing for the edit that that it's very common for directors' mental health and mindset to shift. Um, for, because production or filming is very exciting. You're there in the action. Your vision is fresh. But when you're sitting before a mountain of footage, I always thought logging was the most difficult and uh, time-consuming and boring phase of filmmaking. But if you follow, and I've learned these techniques to help filmmakers log their footage, and if you follow them, 
your mind has to be very sharp because you're choosing. You're, you've got this list of criteria to call the footage, the key plot points, the key ideas. Um, and you're making, you just kind of got to force yourself to make a decision about, you know, if two people say the same thing, which person says it best. And then the, the final tip is very technical. It's just don't rename your clips. So usually uh, the clip will come come into the, the cameras, it's a, a six-digit or alpha, alphabetical numerical title the camera gives it. If you rename it, then it, it can be hard to relink the footage and slow down post-production. Okay. So those are some tips for gathering the footage and calling it. Well, okay, it's newdocediting.com, right? That's right. And new to, doc, uh, like to talk to you, if they want to talk to you about their film and get... Uh, you know, for just a few minutes and find out if the two of you would work together well. How do they reach you, Karen? Um, the best way is to email me, and it's so it's Karen, spelled traditional K-A-R-E-N, at new, N-E-W, doc, D-O-C, editing, this word editing, dot com. Um, and I do offer uh, free 20-minute consultations to filmmakers that I feel I can help. Wonderful. Okay, good. So let's keep going. I just have <laughs> to say $30,000 is about half the price <clears throat> that or one third the price of some of the, right. uh, you know, because I've seen filmmakers spend 200000 on editing. Uh, yeah. And, um, and, and this is when, when you, they're never going to get their m money back when they sell the film. I mean, th that's just way overboard. But even at seventy thousand, a hundred thousand, is what you see usually in a in a uh, mm -hmm. budget, and mm -hmm. that could be the standard. But but looking at it from your point of view makes a lot of sense because the filmmaker knows. Uh, which ones they like. And if they don't, they can make that decision and save so much money and so much time by calling out their favorite and bringing it down to, what did you say, 30 hours of footage to right. come in with? Right. G good. Exactly. That makes a lot mm -hmm. of sense. Thank well, you. now, <laughs> <laughs> it sounds good to me. One of the questions I have is, are documentaries really scripted in the editing room? So, And how do we trust editors that we don't know to touch our precious stuff like our film? So yeah. when you hire, so when someone comes to you and they've really never met the editor, how does that work? It's a great question because that, that relationship, the director-editor relationship is so important. Uh, trust. Trust is key. And I mean trust in two ways. Um, do I feel a fit with this person? And one thing I do when introducing a, an editor, a prospective editor to a prospective director, is I ask them to come to a, a, a phone call with me without knowing one another's credentials because I want people to leave their egos at the door and just feel into the, the sense of fit, meaning does, does this person get me? Can we have a conversation that goes somewhere? Or, you know, is the editor asking me the right questions? 
Um, and then, of course, trust in the sense of credentials and track record. Um, as I mentioned, um, I think it. so many people call themselves editors these days, and, and, and God bless them. I, I have a nephew who is a, an emerging um, editor, but he has not yet cut a documentary. Editors who have spent their careers editing documentaries are fast, and I only hire editors who have at least two feature docs under their belt that have won awards. Um, and so, you know, credentials are part of trust. Also, right. knowing that you will, as a director, you'll always retain editorial control. And a good editor, a good story consultant will, um, you know, if they, if they have a diff- difference of opinion, they'll, they'll fight for their point of view, but ultimately relinquish it if you're adamant about, you know, I don't want this film to have any uh, text on screen exposition, for example, or I have to keep this character in, even if they are um, <laughs> redundant, They're, they play the same role as another character. You know, we, we will uh, use our expertise to suggest the best path, but ultimately our job um, in assisting with the storytelling is to be in service of your vision. Um, and then, you know, at the same time, I ask directors, don't abdicate your responsibility to, to have a vision and, and to, uh, to convey it. Um, but I, you know, to, just to get back to the editor uh, director relationship, I just read a, a good article in Variety uh, magazine. It's titled "Why the the Director Editor Relationship Is Essential in Docu's." Um, and just just a quote it uh, says, "Editors quote have to learn to channel your sensibility, your meaning the director. They're helping you realize your ideas and protecting you from your worst ones." Um. (laughs) that is so true so true you know that's great well okay now what about suggestions for directors who aren't in post-production but are still out there shooting how how do you recommend they get into post I mean how do you say when do you say that's enough I've got it Oh man, <laughs> that is such a great question. Uh, um, and I'm laughing because I've, you know, I've certainly learned with my six documentaries and overshot for most of them. I mean, the biggest mistake is overshooting, and the cause of the biggest mistake, which is going to you know really bog you down in editing, is um, not being clear about what the film is about. And so it's always good to talk to a story consultant. Um, even before you pick up the camera, uh, because it's, it's so much fun to shoot. So production tips, um, you know, I just talked to a a director for a PBS series about, about that we're editing a PBS series and they're shooting. And I said, I really want to make sure that you get, because we didn't have it on the last film we cut for them what I call a protagonist statement of desire, which is just mm-hmm. a line or two in which the protagonist is saying what they want. So it's usually a sentence like, um, 
you know, well, with a film about Prasada, it was something like, I want to build tiny houses and then scale them up for homeless people. Or my goal is to blah, blah, blah. And if right. they don't say that in the interview, you can just, at the end of the interview, just ask them to fill in the blank. Just say, my goal is to, you know, and, and you can ask it a couple times. That really helps focus the viewer on the quest. Um, another tip well, I have, and this, this doesn't address when... I no just one, want to interrupt yeah, you, Karen, ahead. and say that is critical because if you were doing a feature, that's what we all look for. What's the guy's quest what's he after you look for that in the first five minutes because you're going to follow right. him for 40 for for 90 minutes you want to know what's his story you know and yes. so this is where i get lost in docs sometimes because they don't tell me the story plot or what where they really want to go uh and sometimes at, you have to get to the end of the film or sometimes even the end of the trailer uh, and they'll tell you what it's about. And then you think, well, I have to go watch the trailer again because I didn't get it, you know. Yes. And, they, uh, and yes. this reveal at the end doesn't work for me. I don't know about yeah. you, but I want to know something so I can anticipate or look forward to or be part of the search. Right. And you're, you're right that I, one of my rules of thumb is to get that protagonist statement of desire uh, out of the gate within the first five to seven minutes of a documentary. And it's usually preceded by uh, an inciting incident. So something happens to the, uh, the character that makes them want to go on a quest. And stating what the quest is, is the protagonist's statement of desire. Uh, so if they, uh, again, coming back to the example of Prasada's film, he just saw a tiny house in a homeless encampment. It was incredibly inspired uh filmmaker lucy walker who, who's done crash and wasteland she's a master of this uh one of her her protagonists says i want to go down there meaning uh to this the world's largest gar- garbage dump dump i think it was rio rio de janeiro i'm not sure the city uh anymore but um and i want to go down there and help the garbage pickers create art um and so that focused us on the quest so getting that on camera is great. Um, another tip is, you know, you always think documentaries, you're going to do interviews, you're going to shoot B-roll. Uh, but one of the things that you can shoot that's often overlooked and a great vehicle for a character's stories and ideas is conversation. So interactions with other people, documenting relationships in films is very juicy and and along those lines specifically, filming a conversation is often more fruitful than an additional solo interview or pickup interview. And they aren't, dialogue between people isn't usually thought of as an event or a plot point, but dialogue often contains sort of blow-by-blow moments or incidents because things happen in conversations. People have great ideas or they have a roadblock, they, they hit a, a brick wall, uh, they, they have conflict, um, they make headway. Uh, and, and, you know, I encourage directors um, to, and this is, this is sort of on a spectrum, how, uh, how much of a true verite, cinema verite in the old sense, 
of a fly in the wall you want to be or how creative uh, you want to be in sort of, for example, arranging an, account, an encounter between um, two antagonists uh, that can produce a really climactic uh, moment. And Michael Moore is a master of that technique. So in, just in a nutshell, uh, film conversations, because they're inherently dynamic, and if they're not just going to happen in front of you, just ask two people, uh, you know, would you guys be willing to have a respectful argument on camera to make your point of views clear. This is brilliant. You're absolutely right. Uh, I'm looking at a film now, uh, one of the finalists, uh, called <clears throat> that is about uh, they're recreating uh, the Mexicans uh, carrying product down to La Paz on donkeys, like they did 50 years ago. It was like a mule train. They took all the cheese and wine and other goodies down to the south. And uh, one of my favorite scenes in there was when uh, they stopped to say hello to some neighbors, and the neighbors started talking about who they were and what they were doing. And uh, and it was the interaction between the two that gave you a, a feeling of respect and awe for the man heading the mule train or the yeah the mule train. Uh, and so I'm with you because that yeah. little conversation uh, put him on a pedestal for me, gave uh -huh. me some of the backstory. And um, and it was like, okay, now I'm willing to follow this guy for the 45 minutes more. I've got to see the film. And so it's you're right. There was a lot in that little conversation. It wasn't but about two minutes, but it was powerful. Uh -huh. Yeah, that's a great example because he's not – the protagonist is not telling uh, the camera uh, – how great he is or what he's doing, we're learning, we're gaining respect or, you know, he's on a pedestal because other people are responding. Um, and it's sort of a, a social proof. Um, yes. You know, it's, it's in the reputation economy. It's, it's, uh, it's important what other people think. And it gives the viewer a way to evaluate this person uh, rather than just hearing them talk directly to the viewer about what they want or to the interviewer. So that, that's a right. great example. Right. Yeah. Well, now I want to know more about what a story consultant does because it, it sounds like the name should tell me what they're doing, but I want more detail from you because I know it's complicated. Mm. Everything with filmmaking you think is very easy, but when you get into it, <laughs> there's a lot to learn on every aspect. Most people think of a story consultant. Well, first of all, a story consultant uh, is, is still fairly new in the documentary world, and a lot of people don't budget for it. The, the Hollywood term is story editor, and it's more common in narrative films. But um, in terms of, of what I do, uh, I'll, I'll help. Most people think of, of a story consultant coming in at post-production, which I do, and I'll talk about in a second. But I also come in in the development stage, so pre-production, to help filmmakers, and I've been getting more and more filmmakers coming to me for this, proof their concept um, and ask questions like, okay, is there a story here? Um, is this topic, has it been done before? Or, and if so, what are you adding that's new? Is it uh, visual? Uh, so it will it, does it work well to address this topic in a cinematic medium or would this make a better magazine article? Um, 
um, is it cutting edge? And this this is a big one. A lot of filmmakers will, you know, for example, want to make a film about Alzheimer's and follow this amazing couple that they met. And yet this kind of film has been done before. So, uh, again, what can you add that's new? And then during production, um, I can be helpful in terms of some of the ideas I just related what do you need to shoot to uh, have a compelling film uh, and I didn't I didn't uh, really get into uh, when do you know if you're done but if you're um, on a protagonist quest hopefully you've chosen a goal that can be realized or not uh, within the scope of filming so if you're going to film for three months or two years can the goal that they're following be will we know by the end of filming whether they've achieve their goal or not. Mm-hmm. So in Prasada's film, and I won't give away the ending, but we find out whether he's achieved his goal to build tiny houses at scale. Um, you know, mass, sort of mass produce them. And then in post-production, you know, I've sort of boiled this down to there are two sort of major problems with most uh, rough cuts. And, and so we're all about identifying the problems and then going into problem solving. Um, a bunch of problems fall under the umbrella of boredom. This film is bored, boring, or this cut is boring, uh, meaning it hasn't realized its dramatic potential yet. So how can we make it more exciting? One way is to clarify the protagonist's quest early on, which we talked about. Um, mm-hmm. Another sort of umbrella is confusion. Um, so am I understanding what's going on here, in, in both in terms of big plot sense or, you know, sometimes there's a lot of minor points. And so I help filmmakers solve those problems. And usually I'll get a rough cut, um, and um, I will review it a couple times. Um, directors can decide sort of what, I have different story consulting packages so they can decide what level of feedback they want, if it's just sort of headline structural issues or very detailed time code specific suggestions like, you know, you should, there's a great protagonist statement of desire at 38 minutes. You should move it to this, you know, five minute mark after this scene. Um, and then uh, sometimes I will also uh, create what I call a, uh, shot-by-shot, Karen's shot-by-shot movie commentary, which basically means they'll get a a movie file back of their film, and um, they'll see me in the corner giving, I'm actually doing this today, uh, giving very specific feedback, not just ideas, which you could get in written form, like I'll typically give 10 pages of story notes, but you'll see my expression, tone of voice, what's working, what's not working, um, and it's exciting. It's fun. It's fun to do. I, you know, before, I, I just want to um, make sure I get this question to you and Carol, because uh, I was talking to, to, to Claire right before we started about, um, uh, you know, staying excited about one's work and, and finding a balance. And um, I, I, I apologize if this is a rough uh, segue, but I want to ask you this, um, and I'm not sure how long this is going on. Um, 
I, I've had many ways to renew myself over the years. Um, and, you know, I'm 58, so I'm, you know, thinking about, oh, what do I want to retire? Do I want to keep working? And I've often thought about you in the last couple months. And um, I don't know how old you are, but I know you're older than me. <laughs> and I, I thought, what keeps Carol going? Like, where does she get her passion from? Um, isn't Filmmaker she tired? Does she want, you want going, to do something Karen. else? <laughs> no, it's filmmaker power. That's what keeps you going. I mean, I have never been so happy. When I sold my business after running it for 33 years, everybody said, oh, what a great achievement. I said, no, this isn't what I came here for. I don't know what I came for. <clears throat> I'm still looking for. And then when this man was handling the grant for me and he quit abruptly and and, and just threw it in my lap, and it was right near the deadline. I had to learn everything at once. And that from that moment on, I knew that I that's what I came here to do because I love working with filmmakers. And the thing is that after running a business in Hollywood for all those years, I have so many talents in the in the left brain area for business uh -huh. and how to make a profit yeah. that I can share with individuals. And they, when they come to me and say, I don't think uh, I'll make any money and it's not important to make money. I say, no, no, we have to change your thinking right now because you are too precious to us. We have to uh -huh. get you the money you deserve. And so let's talk about how we can do that. But thank you for the question because it's the passion that you have for the work you do and the results you see. I mean, you must be really pleased with the little house and also with yeah. what you did on the Mexican diabetes film. I mean, those are great films. Yeah. 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 It's, um, well, thank you for that story. It, it, it is, I mean, uh, let's get you the money you need is just pure music to a filmmaker's ears. I, I, and I know that as a, as a filmmaker and somebody who's raised money with your help through crowdfunding campaigns and also through grants and stuff. Um, I think filmmakers, I, I once heard editor uh, Vivian Hillgrove say this, and I, I resonate with it and have been saying it for years. Filmmakers are brave. It takes a lot of courage to wear all those hats. And yes, there's a wonderful payoff of having a vision and being able to express it and get it out there. Um, but but the, the stakes are daunting. Maybe you won't get your film out there. Maybe you won't raise the money. Um, and it's, it is an honor to help filmmakers. I know what you mean, but I mean, it, when I get a, and I've finished a consultation and a filmmaker says, thank you. This has been great. I just feel elated uh, because I they're doing something amazing, and to be part of that, yeah, I have. It's that a great too. reward here. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yeah. that's exactly right, Karen. <clears throat> I've seen your work over the years, and I really recognize your brilliance. So, but I'm glad you explained what a story consultant can do, and so getting to you early on can be can actually save them money in the long run because uh, you can help them get clear on what they need to get on the camera because that's what is the biggest problem I think is when they come in with uh, trailers that don't they don't tell you what the story is they are just not directing you into 
the essence of what the real film is. And uh, knowing the story ahead of time, I think, is the key, right? Oh, yeah. And if it's not a story, they don't all have to be stories. Um, uh, what is the central question that you're trying to answer? Or what is the, the thesis statement, the key idea that you're trying to, uh, the case you're trying to make? Uh, yeah. So getting clear, you'll save lots of time. Um, you won't be using the, 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 the camera like a fire hose. And just kind of <laughs> right. filming everything. <laughs> right. Well, Kodak said in the very beginning of the switchover, they said editing will be the biggest issue because filmmakers shooting on film know exactly what they want to shoot, and they may take three takes, but they've got it because they can't afford anything else. But with video, it's yeah. an endless amount of shooting for very little money. So uh, Kodak was right. They they were very smart. But let's go to tips for logging footage, because I know filmmakers would love to hear what you have to say on that. Um, yeah, I think I, I, I addressed some of that, like not don't rename, whoops, excuse me, um, don't rename your clips. And create create sequences or string outs for each character, for the plot points, and then for each um, uh, for for each main idea, um, and that's going to really help your your editor. Um, you uh, you also mentioned trailers, and I just I had just a, a couple tips for trailers. Um, Please. And and the first is to just distinguish between. So there are theatrical trailers, which are generally two minutes, and they're used in promoting the film once it's done. There are fundraising trailers, which can be a little bit longer, but I recommend, you know, I, what what would I, I mean? Well, I'll just ask you, what what would you say is the is the best length for a trailer that is on a crowdfunding crowdfunding site? I would say two would to say? max two twenty maximum. I love it. <laughs> I was going to say two to three minutes, but um, you know, people are so busy when they see uh, a link to a crowdfunding campaign, they go there and they see that it's four and a half minutes long. I mean, I, I typically don't watch it, but if it's, un if it's two minutes or under and sometimes three minutes or under, I'll watch it. So yeah. that's good because one of my tips is that um, you leave them wanting more. One of the big problems with, with trailers, and this goes for both fundraising and theatrical trailers, is people feel like I got I got this from my my partner, and she said, I, I, I'd love to share trailers with her about films I'm excited about. She she'll, she'll sometimes say, okay, I watched the trailer, I don't have to watch the film. In other words, she, <laughs> the trailer made her feel like she already knows what the film is about. So. So how do you avoid that? Well, you don't you give a sense of the quest, but you don't give it away. You don't give away the ending. Another tip is to only include pristine audio. Audio is even more important than video. And and um, showcase your high production values throughout the trailer. Don't include any shaky shots or or dark shots unless you know, there's a murder being ha happening in front of the camera. It's, it's incredibly in exciting information. And then the, the viewer will be more forgiving. Um, there's also a, um, 
at the notion of a uh, sometimes it's called a sizzle reel or ripomatic, and that is uh, that can be a little bit longer. We're working on right one right now, which um, borrows footage from other movies, and this is again more done in the narrative world than the documentary world. That gives the potential funder a sense of the mood of the film. So there'll typically be an interview with the filmmaker talking about what they want to achieve. In this case, we're working on a series. Um, and, you know, what each episode might look like. And so it, you haven't shot anything, but you're borrowing footage from other, and it's not legal. So it's very, um, and I'm not, um, <laughs> you, you, I would say Google Ripomatic and you'll, you'll, you'll read more about it. But it's, it's very in-house. It's just for a couple people. Um, and then there's mm-hmm. the notion of a sample reel. And this is funders like um, uh, Tribeca, Gucci Tribeca Fund or the Sundance Documentary Fund. Sometimes ITVS will ask for um, a sample reel that is either a rough cut or that shows two or three scenes. Because just watching a trailer, a funder can't tell if there's a real film there. You can't tell if there's – this is different. This is institutional funders rather than crowdfunding funders. So mm-hmm. I just want to right. draw that distinction. A uh, sample reel that has a few scenes shows that there are real plot points. So, for example, again, going back to Prasada's film, a scene in which um, one of the homeless people's beautiful new tiny home uh, – is, is vandalized and, and the bolts are stripped out of the, um, the door. And so that, that shows like one of the real challenges that, that the protagonist is facing. Um, it, it, it tells that the funder of this film has substance. There's, there is a narrative arc here. Mm-hmm. Right. So, uh, yeah. Do you have tips, Carol, for editing trailers? You see so many. Well, uh, yes. for example, <clears throat> I think music okay. is sometimes overlooked, the power of music, um, yeah. <clears throat> because the music has to have three acts. There are three acts in the trailer. should change. I mean, you should leave me wanting more, and, and something exciting is going on with the music at the end. So it's like, oh, no, that's too short, and that's what I want to yeah. feel. That's, I want to I want to piggyback on that. Uh, one one mistake I often see is a a constant bed or a bed of music that is constant and it just becomes a drone. So if you can conceptualize the music in two or three sort of movements in a two minute trailer, so that you have the two or three different moods, and also taking music away makes a point. The silence is like an accent or a exclamation point, uh, or it calls attention to the how profound something is that's being said. And then, of course, it gives you an opportunity to bring music back in. So that's, I agree with that. Music, very emotional, very important in trailers. Um, yeah. Also, and specifically, what do you recommend for um, uh, if a director is going to be in in a crowdfunding video? Do you think that's a good idea? What What, what do you think? I do. What, what's I like effective? it. If it's uh-huh. a crowdfunding, I, I want to know why they're making the film. What's their relationship to the material? Because the first thing in your mind is, are they there for the long run? The average time it takes mm-hmm. to make a doc is six years. So how much passion do they wow. have and what's the purpose? 
So I, that's what I look for. And I think other people unknowingly want to feel, is this person going to finish this film and where am I going to see it? They'll think, where is this going to be, down at, uh, down at my movie house or on Netflix or where are you going with this film? Those are things that I think the filmmaker needs to tell, who they are, why they're making the film, and where am I going to see this film, and why should I donate? What's, what are the benefits of the film? I like those right up front. I do, too. I like seeing the filmmaker right away. And then um, you uh, may recall uh, Maury Wachowski, who's uh, great at helping people um, uh, figure out uh, – strategy for their film, the values the filmmaker uh, holds. His daughter, Leah, who I think you helped on a film, had a great crowdfunding campaign where at the end, when she was giving the pitch, she sat with a character from the film, and I think it was placed, uh, situated in Rwanda, and the character asked for funds to complete the film, uh, which I hadn't seen done before, and I thought was just moving. Like, I res- you know, I responded to him. Saying we need this film made. Well, there's another thing, too. I saw another group of people, and every time that they took an interview for their doc, they would ask them to give them a short clip. Fund this film because it'll do this and this. Or, hi, I'm so-and-so, and I'm asking you to support us. Fund this film. And they got clips from all the people uh, all over who were part of the energy or part of the interviews in the film. And they used them in their funding trail. They just put a whole string together. And it worked. It was fun. I love it. It's like a montage of voices that gives a sense of a real community or a team or a tribe it's not just yes. one you know narcissistic what? filmmaker <laughs> exactly sorry i had to but be cynical there for you a mentioned, <laughs> you mentioned mood in the trailer it's very important to create a mood and you do that with your color and one of the guys that donates to our film grant sam delugich gives you free color if you make a deal with him up front that you will let him do the color for your doc or your feature. He'll do the trailer for free. And believe me, that's something you ought to check out. So if you're interested, you've got to email me. Karen, you may want to know that for your filmmakers because Sam is a 30-year veteran from Hollywood, and he does. they've got him only on Sony stuff now. He does work a regular job, but he moonlights and does product uh, coloring for independent filmmakers, mostly documentarians. Color is something that I uh, have overlooked for many years. I think people in the narrative filmmaking world, uh, especially those who went to film school, are much more uh, clued into it. But you're right. The, the choice of oversaturated colors or muted colors or um, a uh, there's a term for it like uh, uh, sort of a color palette to your film um, it's it does like music shape how you experience the material the footage exactly yeah. it puts you in the right mood for the film yeah yeah. Oh, my gosh, Karen. Well, our time is gone, but I, it's so <laughs> wonderful wow. to get to talk to you. I know. <laughs> Would you believe it? But I need you to tell us how people can find you again, please. Yes, absolutely. Um, Karen 
K-A-R-E-N at newdocediting.com is the best way to reach me. And uh, again, the website is new, N-E-W, doc, D-O-C, editing, E-D-I-T-I-N-G.com. I have a new website with lots of beautiful portfolio pieces of films we've worked on. Um, and uh, check it out. Carol, I love you. I love what you're doing <laughs> in the true. world. I'm so just, I just adore you. And um oh. Thank you for this opportunity to to, to talk, and um, thanks to everybody listening. Hopefully you got something of value today. Oh, we did. All of us did. We thank <laughs> you so much, Karen. So you're just a delight, and you're so smart to come up with this creative way to get a doc fi- uh, finished and do your thank you. uh, editing for 30000 That is a bargain, uh, and particularly with the fact that you're using only award-winning editors and people that you've scrutinized. So thank you for all this info, and um, we just will keep you in mind for all the people that I'm looking at now in my film grant that need story help. <laughs> thank you, Carol. I, I appreciate okay. it. It's, um, it's fun to, 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 to match people. Um, so thank you, and, uh, and, and of course, ditto. Thanks. And Claire, thank you very much for helping with the show. Okay, well, we'll be back to you, uh, Karen, in another six months. I hope you'll join us. Thank you. I'd love to. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks, Karen. Be well, everyone. Now, in its second edition, Carol Dean's popular book, The Art of Film Funding, has 12 new chapters to cover all areas of film financing and how to avoid expensive pitfalls. Learn how to start with an idea and end with a trailer. How to make an ask for money. Create your story structure and your trailer. Legal advice, fair use, successful crowdfunding, how to ask for music rights, and what insurance you can't shoot without. Available on Amazon under Carol Dean and at FromTheHeartProductions.com. I want to remind our listeners that David Raiklin is a brilliant and talented award-winning musician who scores films and can compose music for a trio or for a full orchestra. David is a very good friend to the independent filmmaker and comes highly recommended by From the Heart Productions. If you need music to help tell your story, please contact him at davidraiklin.com. That's David, R-A-I-K-L-E-N dot com. And Carol and I want to thank you for tuning in to The Art of Film Funding. Please visit our website at fromtheheartproductions.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Good luck with your films, everyone.